This is Gennaro Lovelace, your co-host of But Are You Thriving? In the upcoming episode, I interview one of my heroes, Marianne Williamson. She did one of her famous live broadcasts from our first warehouse right after we launched. The quote she wrote with Nelson Mandela, our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate, but powerful beyond measure, has been a guiding light and reminder for me often when I have felt down or insecure. Marianne's eloquence and power is humbling and often makes me feel speechless. So without further delay, here is the episode. Hello, everybody. My name is Gennar Lovelace. I'm the co-host of But Are You Thriving and one of the co-founders of Thrive Market. It is such an honor and pleasure here to have Marianne Williamson, best-selling author, political activist, and spiritual thought leader with so many other adjectives that I could say about her incredible, incredible life. I'm so grateful to be here with you, Marianne. Oh, I'm always grateful to be with you and talk to you. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been such a, a beneficiary of your work through my life. And for those of our audience who don't know you, since it's grown so much since the last time we shared some content with them years ago, I just wanted to kind of ask you, what would you want listeners to know about you and your work these days? What would feel relevant to you? You know, that's so interesting the way you uh, language the question. I never think in terms of what I would want people to know. You know, I always say I'm never trying to get a message out. I'm trying to get a message in. Mm -hmm. I try to disconnect from what I think other people want to hear or, or what I want them to know. I just think in terms of what I might say that would contribute in some way. I think that we're having a podcast about how to thrive. I think that we're living at a time when the only conversation of value, you know, Martin Luther King said, your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter most. So I would just hope that we talk about things that matter most. Mm -hmm. And I, I once went to a, a retreat led by Catholic nuns. And at the end of the retreat, the sister said, I want to thank all of you for participating, both those of you who participated verbally and those of you who participated silently. So I think of this conversation as something we're having with the so-called audience, the listener. We're all participating verbally or silently, and I just hope we get to talk and think and listen to things that matter most. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I really appreciate that frame. And, you know, I... Uh, Maybe it's just because I'm really stubborn, but I, I find that the greatest learnings in my life have come through the periods of intense suffering, whether it's confronting my fears or survival trauma or sexual abuse or things that happened to me in my life. And I'm curious for you what you feel like were critical moments in your life journey that there was specific points that really kind of caused you to really awaken to your potential? Well, you know, in A Course in Miracles, it says it's not up to you what you learn. It's merely up to you whether you learn through joy or through pain. So like you, and I assume like most people, I have probably learned mainly through pain. But I don't want to glorify that because I think it's important to realize that I didn't have to. I could have chosen wisely. And if <laughs> I had known how to, I would have. So I think we learn as much through joy mm -hmm. as we learn through pain, because mm -hmm. when we're learning through joy, we're learning from doing it right. Mm -hmm. 
So my moments of greatest joy, I think, have taught me as much as my moments of greatest pain, moments when I've been in love, moments when I had my child. We sometimes underestimate the value of living righteously, right use. Righteous means right use. There's a quiet joy that comes from living a life that works, saying the things, thinking the things, behaving in a way that contributes to harmony, makes people want to work with you, be with you, make situations just sort of fall in place. That brings a peace and a quiet joy that is not adrenaline-based, but I think it's the greatest teaching because it's exercising the muscles of right living, what Buddha called right living. And the more you exercise those muscles, the more your life unfolds accordingly. Mm -hmm. Like everybody else, I've had the disasters in my life. And I have lived long enough to realize that the vast majority of my disasters were created by me. I used to think of my life as something in which I was just thrown against the rocks, these big cliffs and these big rocks, and the wind was just pushing me against the rocks all the time. Why was this always happening? And I came to understand you were the wind. You were the one who made that decision without prayerful reflection and so did something stupid. You were the one who didn't have control of your emotions in that situation. You were the one who just didn't behave wisely. So those were the situations in which I crashed and burned. The form that they took were the same as there were garden variety, uh, relationships that crashed and burned, professional opportunities that crashed and burned. But what matters is not the form of the crash. What matters is what led to them. Where was I out of my center? Where was I not there for the right reason? Where was I not centered in love? Where was I indulging my own character defects? Where was I not forgiving other people for theirs? So... I think that, once again, you learn from those situations because you are motivated to get it right once you've hurt yourself enough mm -hmm. getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. But I also love the idea that we can learn through joy mm -hmm. and from getting it right. And you go to sleep at night thinking, it wasn't so bad today. I mm -hmm. did okay. That's an important learning as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate that frame as well. And it definitely is uh, something that I aspire more and more to have a, a more gentle, graceful learning process that isn't informed by suffering. And when I look back at my own life, where I've had the greatest suffering and challenges, they were immediately preceded by thinking I knew what was going on and the rigidity that comes from that, where I'm not listening to the messages that I'm getting, and then that kind of uh, collision course that happens in those dynamics. Well, that's it right there, isn't it? The Course in Miracles says that the ego speaks first and the ego speaks loudest. I can look at every big mistake I've made in my life, and like you just said, at the time, I thought it was a good idea. At the time, <laughs> I thought I was really had it going on. I knew what I was doing. Well, obviously not. And living in today's world, if you're not practicing meditation, if you're not praying about your decisions, then you are very likely to make a mistake that you look at in retrospect and say, what was I thinking? But it seemed like a good idea at the time. There was a French philosopher named Blaise Pascal. And Blaise Pascal said, every problem in the world derives from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Mm. 
to just, and that's why mm-hmm. meditation in the morning matters, why prayerfulness matters, mm-hmm. because we're all spun out. You know, mm-hmm. modernity is an assault. We're all being assaulted today. Mm-hmm. It's in the ethers. Everybody's spun out. Nobody has any impulse control. How many of us have spent hours, nights, months crying because of some stupid text we wrote, mm-hmm. something we said that we wish we hadn't said, a decision mm-hmm. that we make that we so regret. Look at all the people who've ruined their careers because of a tweet. Mm-hmm. So I think people are realizing that we've got to get back to the center of things. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it means to get back to the garden and mm-hmm. find that that gentle place that you were talking about. The ego mind would have us think there's nothing there, but that's where everything is that's good and holy and beautiful. Yeah, that's really, really beautiful. And it's so fun because I, whenever I talk to you, I always have all these things that I want to ask you. And then you just like, you always have such piercing responses that I, I find that I, I lose track of the things that I want to ask you because the way you respond to the questions is, is so beautiful and piercing. You know, one of the things that I, that relates to what you were just sharing about the kind of adrenalized lifestyle and you know, you just think about how everything's going faster all the time. And 25 years ago, there weren't even cell phones. So like, it just, it just took a day or two to get back to people on a phone call. And now there's an expectation that we're on all the time. And not only are we on all the time via text message, but we're on all the time via 10 different platforms, whether it's WhatsApp or Facebook or any of these scenarios. And I really feel like that piece of cultivating those rituals that bring us back to our center point is so essential. And, you know, Michael Paul in a book of his, he talks about how caffeine has radically changed human civilization and those rituals that you're speaking to. And I'm, I'm curious, I would imagine given how dynamic your life is, I wonder what, what are your rituals? Like, how do you create a healthy life? What habits have you stuck with that have been a game changer for your spiritual and physical health? Well, first of all, I think it's significant that people have come to realize what you're talking about. People are realizing this whole thing is crazy now. Somebody has your cell phone. It's like they own you. And um, people, places let's say a hotel or some destination point, used to brag about the fact that you can be on the grid if you come here. Today, those same places brag that you will be off the grid if you come here. Mm-hmm. People do understand that we're killing ourselves, that, mm-hmm. that our adrenals are shot, that our nervous systems are shot, and that these things are addictive, particularly the social media. So the good news about the bad news is I think people are beginning to realize a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But I think you can't just do a ritual here or ritual there in order to fix it. There has to be fundamental change. And fundamental change for me begins, as is emphasized in every great religious and spiritual system that I know of, in the morning. Because when you wake up in the morning is when your mind is most open to new impressions. So if you wake up in the morning and you go directly to Twitter or Snapchat or WhatsApp or whatever it is, you're just downloading the stress of the world. Mm -hmm. And then there's no mystery why you're depressed by noon. So if you begin in the morning, that's the most important thing to me. But once again, I don't think of it as a ritual because I like to think of it as a foundation of my life that day. For me, it's the workbook of A Course in Miracles. It doesn't matter the particular form that your meditation or prayer or yoga, whatever it is, takes, but 
grounding your nervous system in the peace that is not of this world in those beginning hours or even those beginning minutes makes so much difference. If you do that, there's a line in The Course in Miracles where it says, five minutes in the morning spent with the Holy Spirit will guarantee that He will be in charge of your thought forms throughout the day. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we wake up, we take a shower, we take a bath because you don't want to take yesterday's dirt on your body into the day. But if you don't meditate, pray, do whatever it is to center yourself in spirit in the morning, then no matter what's going on on your physical skin, within yourself, you're carrying the stress of yesterday into today. In today's world, you're not only carrying your stress, you're carrying the stress of everybody who's in Colorado Springs, everybody's in Chesapeake, Virginia, where there were mass shootings. We're just, we're just a bundle of nerves. We're mm-hmm. a bundle of chaos. So you have to counter that. So it's ritual, but it's something beyond ritual. It's a conversion. It's an emotional and psychological conversion. Otherwise, this world and the chaos of the world today will eat you alive. And there are many people suffering in ways that prove that this is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because I, I just love the simplicity and power of that. How can we thrive in life if our nervous systems aren't regulated, if we're constantly in a fight or fight cortisol response cycle? And even though I know that, I still find myself compulsively like looking at the news earlier in the morning, for example. And it's just such a, you know, just in this moment, I'm going to recommit to extricating that pattern and really creating more space for my nervous system. You know, the word disciple and the word discipline come from the same root. You discipline your attitudinal muscles, just like you discipline your physical muscles. So you do yoga or you do weight training in order to develop your muscles, in order to create anti-gravity, right? Because if you're not working at keeping the muscles up, they're headed down. And so that you can move powerfully in the world. Spiritual exercise is the exact flip of that. You were developing the muscles and the musculature of stillness and non-reactivity in order to develop emotional and psychological anti-gravity, because the gravity of this world will pull you into anger and cynicism and despair and victimization and all of those things. So you have to do the work, just like you go to the gym. You go into that sacred space. So you kind of just discipline yourself. You know, if I look at that, if I go to the newspaper, if I go to the computer, if I go to all of that first thing in the morning, it's going to be harder. It's going to be harder to get back onto the spiritual wagon. And I think that that spiritual work is much like our changes with food, our changes with any other aspect of lifestyle. You lean into it. You don't just tell yourself, oh, I'm going to make this radical change right away. You know, we all know now that that's just setting yourself up for failure. But we can start to lean in to a more righteous way of living. Righteous means right use, right use of the mind. Buddha talked about right mind, right speech, right action. And the world in which we live is dominated by a consciousness of wrong action and wrong speech and wrong thought. Wrong-minded means non-loving. So we're living in a world where love is not first, where 
profits are first, corporate profits are first, huge behemoth industries, and their profits are first, and it has turned everything into a commodity. It's turned everyone into a consumer. And then what concerns me is then the fact that people are so anxious and depressed living in this insanity makes them think something's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. I have an anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. The world you live in is insane. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes... Gunnar, the fact that we're upset is not a dysfunctional response. It's a functional response. I've been saying for a long time, if you look at the world in which it now exists for so many billions of people and you're not depressed, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. When you have a broken leg, your brain produces pain for a reason. The physical pain is a sign from the brain something's wrong. You need that signal. If you, if something's wrong in your body, you feel pain. It's a functional pain. The pain is a sign. Go to the doctor, repair that, reset the leg. So, so much of the psychic pain of the age in which we're living is functional. It's the brain saying, something's really wrong here. You've got to change the world. So, somebody was saying, I was reading about the latest, you know, mass shooting. This week we had two major mass shootings. And they said, well, we have these mental health issues. You know, that's a, that's a slippery thing. The system says it's a mental health issue. No, the system is the mental health issue. And the fact that it produces this level of insanity among so many people doesn't speak to the problem within the person. It speaks to the problem within the society that produces that kind of, of suffering, pain and suffering in so many people, which takes such perverted form. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in what you just said. You know, I think the whole construct, you know, you just look at even like the construct of a, the American dream and the nuclear family, like the nuclear family is a, is a marketing construct that was invented to break up large families so companies could sell more product. And just as you're saying, you know, the simplicity and the power of cultivating the, the commitment of working that spiritual muscle it actually doesn't even take that much time in the morning, for example, to set that table, but it, it really is that commitment to just work that muscle, to develop that muscle, to be honest with ourselves, to really cultivate the garden of our consciousness. And I've heard you speak live many times, and one of the talks that I heard you give at one point was to a, a you know a younger audience, and you were advocating in that, that talk about taking less depression medication. And instead of numbing ourselves, leaning into the feelings that we feel and actually using that feeling as fuel for our lives. And that has stuck with me over the decades since I heard it. And I I would just love for you to share a little bit more about that for our audience. The 20s are a very difficult decade. They're very hard. They are not a mental illness. That's when you have your first heartbreak. That's when you're trying to individuate, figure out who you are. Who had an easy time in their 20s? But that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. You know, you were talking about the idea that the nuclear family became an idea that was just there as a construct by which to sell. That's what the system does. There is a mental health industrial complex in our society today. It is 
an $11 billion industry. Now, it's kind of like pain medication. Is it good that pain medication exists? Oh, absolutely it's good. I mean, if you've had surgery and so forth, I've had surgery, and thank God that I had those pain meds. However, we are very aware now that predatory pharmaceutical executives created a profit center where it was not necessary and led to tragedy among hundreds of thousands of people. Why are we so naive not to recognize that they've done that now with antidepressants? I understand that there are psychotherapeutic, legitimate, valid, even very positive uses for psychotherapeutic drugs, such as bipolar, schizophrenia, all kinds of things like that. But what has happened in the last few years is that they have made up this idea that they have some monopoly on the definition of quote-unquote clinical depression. Now, notice there's no blood test for clinical depression. It means somebody in a clinic said it. So somebody will say, oh, no, this is different. This is clinical depression. Anytime somebody says that and they were prescribed antidepressants, it might be useful to ask, did somebody give you a blood test? There's no blood test. And if you say, no, this is a chemical imbalance, your brain chemistry is different if you meditated. Your brain chemistry is different whether or not you ate sugar. So... This is not to judge whether or not people are on antidepressants. I'm sure there are situations where it's very valuable, but it's very interesting what's going on in the society, and I think somewhat tragic. There is a black box label on these drugs that actually say that suicidal ideation is increased among people 25 years old and younger. And whenever you you ask any questions about this, they go, oh, you're being irresponsible about mental health. But the suicide rates have not gone down since this unbelievable overprescription. And the overprescription, it's nothing radical to say that Americans are overprescribed pharmaceuticals anyway. So, yeah, I think it's very concerning. And, oh, it's so treated like so precious, like how dare you question my anxiety or my depression. I'm not questioning your anxiety or your depression. I'm just saying that we are anxious and depressed when we are not living the lives we are put on the earth to live. And the society in which we live teaches us the opposite of our spiritual function. It tells us that we have to try to get ahead. It tells us that we have to try to compete with one another. It tells us that we are separate from one another. So all of those things lead us down a path. Spiritual health and mental health are the same thing because they have to do with the use of the mind. Uh-huh. And and also, they now admit, they that for a long time they would not, but now they do, that these things are addictive. I have known women, Ganar, in their 40s, who are trying to get off antidepressants, have a very, very difficult time doing it. They're very difficult to get off of. And they can't even remember. They can't even remember why they were originally put on those drugs in their 20s. Now, having said all that, this is a very important caveat, please. I don't want to risk anybody listening to me talking about this and thinking, I'm going to go throw my antidepressants in the wastebasket. You can't do that. That is dangerous. If you have been on them for a long time, you can't just immediately go off because that can be very, very dangerous. So if you have been on them and you have any question about it, you must wean yourself very, very carefully and under medical supervision. 
But this issue of, you know, it's like Krishnamurti's line, it is no sign of mental health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. The way we order our society is sick. There has been such a mass transfer of wealth over the last 45 years into the hands of 1% of people. The majority of people are living on some level of survival in the richest country in the world. 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And even people who are not living to paycheck to paycheck are living in, in so often in a situation, if, if I don't get it right, I could lose my job and then it's all over. It's insane. So this is not a moment when we should be masking that pain or desensitizing ourselves. It's a time when we should be facing what's wrong in order to change it. I'll give you an example. Sometimes, let's say a woman gave birth to a child, and there are millions of years of evolution that have gone into every cell of her body knowing it is too soon for me to leave that baby. The baby needs to be on my skin and I need to hold that baby in my arms. Millions of years of evolution based on cultivating all health, including the mental health of both mother and child, are involved in that woman's internal knowing I'm not supposed to go back to work yet. So she goes to her therapist and she says, I don't want to go back to work yet. It's too soon. The therapist says, well, let's give you something for your depression. No, what's wrong is that we don't have paid family leave. But there's so much about the traditional psychotherapeutic model that has been a spectacular failure. That's an example because it's made everyone so self-referenced that we think, oh, this is just my problem. No, it's not just your problem. It's the problem of millions of people like you who are being completely, completely oppressed on a certain level by a social order that is putting its profits above your well-being and the well-being of your children. That's not something to mask. That's something to get together with other people who are similarly depressed and saying we're depressed because something's wrong in this world and we're going to change what's wrong. And then we will no longer feel so sad. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing the disclaimer caveat around not just throwing meds away. No, you you must never do that. Never, ever do that. That is dangerous. Yeah. But the piece that really stuck out with me when I first heard you share that thought is just the, the ways that we numb ourselves from feeling. And I think we're so incredible as a species. Like we're, we're so powerful. We're so creative. We actually can feel so much and we can create so much beauty when our hearts and our minds are aligned. And to your point, if we're paying attention and we allow ourselves to actually see what's happening and to feel what's happening on the planet, that anger and those fears, you know, are really fuel to propel our lives, to improve our lives and to be of service and, and, and a benefit. And I was just so appreciated when I first heard that you know, I've always like, like, like everybody else, I'm, I love the idea of quickly managing and soothing myself. And I, as I heard that, I just recognize all the ways that I try to numb myself, whether it's, you know, with substances or whether it's with watching entertainment or whatever it is. And these are all like, there's nothing wrong with these things. They all have their place and imbalance. But I just found that to be such a salient point. And this whole question of feeling disenfranchised and maybe even enslaved by the system in certain ways. I was at this two-day birthday party with some very, very wealthy humans a year ago. 
And two of the five wealthiest people on the planet were at this gathering. And what was so striking to me was they were the most unhappy people I have ever interacted with in my life. They were so burdened by all the trappings and egoic expectations of themselves and the world that they were just so burdened by that. And it was, it was actually an incredible new like opportunity for me to have compassion because so often I'm like those that are exploiting and those that are manipulating and extracting resources. But actually what I saw in that interaction was that they themselves are often just trapped and very outmoded belief systems that lead them to think they need to leave the lives that they're living. No, they're not. No, they're not trapped. They're choosing it. Yeah, well, that's, that's a fair point. So, you know, we need to stop with the lack of accountability. When you look at people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Howard Schultz, I agree with what you were saying the first time. They're not trapped. They're choosing this. That doesn't mean they're not innocent children of God. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have compassion for, for their pain like any other human being. But they are directly or indirectly responsible uh-huh. um, in certain situations for unacceptable amounts of stress among people who are trapped. Uh-huh. That's the thing. Uh-huh. They're not trapped, Gunnar. Uh-huh. They trap. Uh-huh. And I think the unmasking of the billionaire class is part of what's going on in our society right now, and it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally understand that viewpoint, and I think it's really having the privilege to choose another way and not choosing it. That's the point. And then yeah. using the leverage and power that exactly capitalism and technology right. has created, right. which which creates so much right. suffering. Whereas somebody at a job where they you know can't even get a minimum wage. They don't even have sick days. They can't even leave to be with their mother when she's dying or with their children when their their little boy has a basketball game. Daddy, are you coming? Those are the people who are trapped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that as well. Zooming out a little bit, and I don't mean to be pedantic, but I know you're a great student of human consciousness, where we are, what's happening. Like, where do you feel that we are as a species right now? What are the greatest challenges and opportunities that you think we face? What does thriving mean to you, given the state of what you see today? Well, The Course in Miracles says, there is a limit beyond which the Son of God cannot miscreate. So love is co-creation with God. And thought and behavior that is not loving is miscreation. And We have free will, which means you can think whatever you want to think. But if you continue to move in a direction of thought or behavior that is not loving, it will stop working for you. Immoderate drug use, and you just might overdose. Immoderate drinking, you just might die of cirrhosis of the liver. And we are now, with the way we're treating the earth, the way we're treating each other, how reckless and irresponsible we are with huge weapons of mass destruction, we are on the brink of it not working for us on this planet anymore. If we do not change our ways, if we do not make a U-turn, this ship is on the way to the iceberg. We are all on the Titanic here, archetypally. Now, that iceberg could take the form of biochemical disaster. It could take the form of climate disaster. It could take the form of nuclear disaster. But we're on the way 
towards that iceberg right now, and we must turn around. And I think a lot of what you and I have been talking about here today is we have to be awake enough, not numbed out. we got to rise up, now. we got to go, oh, my God. Of course the system wants to numb us, because the system, it's not a matter of, a you know, some bad people who are sitting there, how can I screw with people's lives? That's not the way it works. The way it works within the system is that that which would lead us in a loveless direction is no different than what happens inside you and me when we were talking earlier about when we made our biggest mistakes and at the time we thought it was a good idea, right? <laughs> it's just the, the the blindness of mind when it is turned away from love. So where I think the species is right now, and I think people are recognizing it, is we are six inches from the cliff. Our democracies are six inches from the cliff. Our ecosystem is six inches from the cliff. And what it means to thrive right now, to me, means to participate, rise up, participate in whatever it would do to turn things around. What will it do to turn things around in the way we eat, the way we produce food, the way we govern ourselves, the way we solve conflict, the way we educate our children, the way we take care of anything? You see in every area, and you certainly in your work, and, and I in mine as well, I'm sure many people who are listening right now are already involved. I mean, when you think in terms of the, the human race moving in a more sustainable direction, the people, the ideas, the projects already exist. You don't have any dearth of geniuses in this world who are already pointing to a way to move from dirty economy to clean economy, from war economy to a peace economy, to grow food differently, to repair the earth. We know what to do. The problem is that the institutional powers that govern not only our country, but so many systems around the world are so institutionally resistant to turning in a more thrivable, sustainable direction because moving in a more sustainable direction at this point doesn't produce necessarily short-term corporate profits. What it produces is the possibility that maybe the human race could still be around in, in 100 years, which many of us would say, yeah, I'll go with that. So these are revolutionary times. We have to revolt within ourselves. It begins with an inner revolution. Now, JFK said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. Things are going to get really terrible unless they get really good and pretty quickly, because at this point, it's a race for time. But I think if we wake up every morning and say in our own way, whatever language, whatever conceptualization works for us, God use me. Where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say? To whom? Use me. Use my hands. Use my feet. Then your life begins to change. You feel yourself. You feel angels pushing you from behind. You feel nature organizing every aspect of your life. And by the way, your anxiety falls away. Because we were born for times such as these. This is why we were born, why we were born. And if you're not participating in this divine revolution, I don't think you can be happy right now because some part of us subconsciously knows what's going on here. And each of us were, were born with a divine and unique set of talents and abilities and skills with which to participate in the change. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. One of the things that I love about your work is that it's so non-denominational. You know, it's not, it's so accessible. Uh, you can be Christian, you can be Buddhist. It's very, like, it's just very, very scalable. And I think that what you're speaking to is really this fundamental crisis of consciousness. And yet we're so powerful. We're so, like, I'm fundamentally an optimist in the ability for humanity to create incredible 
solutions. And yet we're also ruled by very obsolete survival fear and greed and, and violence. And I just love the way that you distill that into such a powerful message. And I'm curious, you know, like a day in your life, what does that actually look like? How do you start and finish? I know, I know you've, you've talked about your morning practice, but how do you create a healthy life for yourself? What does that look like for you? Well, as you, you said, it's important to me that I have that Course in Miracles workbook open on my coffee table in my living room, and my mornings are very important to me. And I believe that humanity, the world is a perfect ecosystem, and it's much like the ecosystem of the body. Each cell is appointed. Each cell is assigned. And some are assigned to the bones, and some are assigned to the blood, and some are assigned to the pancreas, and some are assigned to the lungs, and so forth. And when the cell reaches its destination, its destination is always that its highest actualization is collaboration with other cells to serve the healthy function of the organ or the organism of which they're part. And every once in a while, a cell disconnects from that collaborative function, goes off to do its own thing. And that's called cancer. It's called malignancy. And it's a malignancy in the body. It's also malignancy in consciousness. So humanity has been infected by this malignant consciousness. It's all about me. So what I seek to do in my life is to ask to be used by something bigger than me that's the problem of the world today. It's all about me. That's why the traditional psychotherapeutic paradigm is so spectacularly failed, because it just turns us back on ourselves. The Course in Miracles says, don't look to yourself to find yourself, because you're not there. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do every day is, number one, seek in whatever way possible to be of value to something bigger than myself, and also to realize that it is built into the universe that cells are assigned to one another for a great collaborative work. In this case, you and me doing this podcast together. If you just say whatever I am doing, it's not about what I am doing. It's about in whatever I'm doing. Am I showing up? Am I there to give rather than get? Am I, to the best of my ability, seeking to spread that which is loving, beautiful, holy, and good, and true? Am I fully present? Am I using this experience to the best of my ability to, to be my best? And then there is nothing else to make your goal. Your goal isn't the past. Your goal isn't the future, because that's just ego. That's all you need to know. What am I doing today? I'm doing this podcast right now. Earlier today, I did another podcast. Earlier than that, I did a meeting with these people about teaching the Course in Miracles in Mexican prison, interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. Before that, I was talking to people about the possibility of my doing something political in the future. Later on tonight, I'll be working on editing my my latest book that will come out next year. And then hopefully after that, I'll have some fun. But, you know, it's all in a day. It's all in a day's life, right? So I think the point I'm trying to make is it's not about what we do. It's mm -hmm. about who we are in the mm -hmm. space of what we do. Mm -hmm. By the way, not in The Course in Miracles, it says that everybody has a highly individualized curriculum. That means you come to realize that every single thing that happens to you, every circumstance is a lesson. 
that's for your own good because it will either give you an opportunity to do well what you've done well before or to do better what maybe you didn't do so well before. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's not about what happens in life. It's about who you are in the space of what happens. So when you say, what does my day look like? The real question from a spiritual perspective is not what did this day look like, but what does this instant look like? Who are you in this instant? Are you, are you judging or are you loving? Are you blessing or are you blaming? Are you living in the present, imagining infinite possibilities? Or are you running a game from the past about yourself or someone else? That's spiritual practice, not what you do, but who you are. And who you are will then give rise to the right doing that will lead you to a happier life. Yeah. And I, I love that piece of, the real encouragement towards serving something greater than our own self-interest. I find in my own life, when I'm really in a place of service, when I'm doing something, first of all, just serving myself is actually just a place of great suffering. And exactly. That's the point here. Yeah. And, and so it's this, it's actually this really ironic payoff that we get when we actually serve others. We run joy and more uh, vibrancy in our bodies. We're more alive. Obviously, there's a balance to that, right? We need to have space for ourselves. So I really like, I have burned myself out. I've martyred myself. I've crashed and burned multiple times in my life by trying to do good. And at the same time, I think what you're speaking to is really this key piece when when we buy the kind of mainstream consumer marketing propaganda that our lives are just about feeding our pleasures and desires nonstop as hungry ghosts that are never satiated it's it's a very lonely desperate life with very short term pleasure uh, whereas when we recognize that we're part of a matrix and the more we give, the more we receive, and that our lives are about serving something greater than our own self-interest, we actually start to train our consciousness and our nervous system to to live that way. And I, I think it's such a, a powerful message. That's it. And when you are living only for yourself, anxiety and depression are inevitable. But that's the way we are trained to live by the ego's thought system that dominates this planet. So when we do collaborate and we do seek to live for others, we are actually serving ourselves because the real self is not just you. The Course in Miracles says you are like waves in the ocean thinking you're separate from other waves. You're like sunbeams to the sun thinking you're separate from other sunbeams. There's really no place where one wave stops and another wave starts. So you're down in Costa Rica and I'm in DC. So on a physical level, we're separate. But on the level of mind, there is no time and space. On the level of time, there's no place where your mind stops and my mind starts. So the Course in Miracles says, enlightenment is a shift in self-perception from body identification to spirit identification. And when you're in spirit identification, you really begin to realize there's no place where I stop and somebody else starts. So when I'm loving the world, I am loving myself. And within that, of course, self-care becomes natural because you realize, well, if I don't take care of my body, take care of my health, take care of my food, take care of my need to rest, spend time alone, etc., I can't be of any value to others because it's like I'm a worn out car. 
knowing that we're kind of getting near the top of the hour here, where should people come find you? Where should people connect with your work? Where should people, you know, you're, you've been bravely and courageously advancing political dialogue. Where should people find you these days? Well, they can find me on Twitter. They can find me on Facebook. They can find me on Instagram. Uh, I've done a little bit of TikTok and people can go to Marianne.com and sign up on my mailing list. And, uh, I'm pretty much out there. I'm not exactly hiding under a rock. So, Beautiful. you know, everything from YouTube to, oh, and my Substack. I write a Substack at MarianneWilliamson.substack.com. That's where people can receive daily meditations. I also have done videos of The Course in Miracles lectures every day. Not lectures every day, but the workbook exercises. That's at Mornings with Marianne. That's at Marianne.com. So if somebody's interested, the stuff is out there. Yeah, you're, you're sharing your work so beautifully. And uh, you've been so generous with me and Thrive Market. I remember very early on when we were just like maybe a week or two out in the world, we had just launched and we were operating out of this ridiculously small warehouse in LA. And you messaged me and you're like, hey, I'm looking for a place to do one of my live broadcast with some live audience members. And you ended up doing it at our warehouse. And it was such a beautiful blessing and honor to have you there. And the ways that you share your gifts have been such an inspiration for me. I know I've, you know, it's, it's probably boring to you, but, you know, one of your quotes, which has been such a, a North Star for me in my life, that our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate, but that we're powerful beyond measure, that it is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. And we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, talented, fabulous? And actually, who are you not to be? And that quote is so beautiful. And I find that where you talk about you know, there's nothing enlightened about shrinking so other people won't feel insecure, but that we're all meant to shine as children do and that we're born to make manifest the glory of God. Uh, it's been such a, a beautiful reminder for me in my own life. Uh, and I'm so grateful for the unique pattern of energy that is known as Marianne Williamson, the way that you are so courageous in sharing your life with all of us. And uh, it's really a pleasure to have you with us here. That is so sweet of you to say thank you. It was great being with you. And I'm I'm laughing inside that you call that building ridiculously small, because uh, I don't remember it being ridiculously small. But uh, it says to me that things have gone very well for you if that was ridiculously small. Well, it's for me, having grown up, you know, with the very poor Latino immigrants with a single mom, it's been such a dream to work with such amazing people, such incredible, dedicated humans at Thrive Market that really care deeply about making healthy living accessible for everybody. And I think that, you know, as we've talked about in this conversation, healthy living is, is such a multidimensional framework that includes the things that we put in our bodies, but also the, the ways that we relate to reality and consciousness and the ways that we tend the garden of, of our incredible capacity as human beings. And yet, you know, one of the most fundamental challenges we face is in the way we produce, distribute, consume, and market food today. And it's right. at the core of so many of the challenges we face. And absolutely, I, I so appreciate the, the ways that you have been generous and sh shared your gifts with our community. And for those of you who have 
you're hearing Marianne Williamson for the first time, I just so, so deeply encourage you to go check out her work at Marianne.com and all of the places on the main social channels for Marianne Williamson. And just so love you, so appreciate you, and, and so grateful that you took some time to be with us. Well, thank you so much. It's always nice to talk to you, Gunnar. So very simple. We have these unifying questions that we like to ask people uh, very, very simply in short form. What does thriving mean to you? We obviously spoke to that a little bit in the, in the conversation already. I think that there is tremendous energy within the space of who we truly are. When we seek to use our minds in such a way as to love better, who can I be today? Where am I off? Where did I judge? And where I judge, where can I atone? Where can I be the person that I was born to be? Where can I forgive others? Where can I be more generous? Where can I live more truly? Where can I be less superficial? And energy, it's like the blocks to the awareness of love and power just fall away. That's what it means to me to thrive. Because then you find yourself in the right relationships, in the right circumstances. You feel the angels pushing you from behind. And you know, yeah, this is what it's supposed to be like. That's what it means to me to thrive. Beautiful. And are there any areas in your life that you would like to change to thrive more? Oh, yeah. You know, you know, it's always our own personal defects, right? Our own character defects. I can be snarky. I can be reactive. Those are, it's like this little angry tone that can come in. That That's where my main character defects are. Mm-hmm. I, I can relate to that one as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I think look, mm-hmm. looking at uh, one of the uh, most common narratives of those that have worked for me over the years is they don't feel psychologically safe with me. That's a big deal. Exactly. Yeah, uh, me too. So yeah, I, yeah, I've, yeah, I've yeah, had, yeah. had to learn a lot about how mm-hmm. to be more gentle in mm-hmm. my in my critique and mm-hmm. my leadership mm-hmm. style. Absolutely. 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 I'm with you on that. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Marianne. This podcast represents the opinions of the hosts and the guests on the show. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions or advice. Enjoy the show.